0: One of the details of that particular passage that I don't think I'd ever fully processed was that Jesus appears to the eleven, and being the omniscient God that he is, he chose to come when Thomas wasn't there. And then Thomas says, I, I don't know if I can believe this, I'm going to have to see I'm going to have to put my hand where those holes are. And then a week later, Christ appears again. And I guess this this past week I found myself kind of trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who had to wait a week with the other disciples, with them having seen Jesus in the flesh and wondering, Wanting to believe, but not quite being able to do it. And then Christ comes and appears again. And so the resurrection, the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, not some disembodied spirit. Yeah, I believe it's the, the passage in Luke. It says he came and he, he took a piece of boiled fish and he's like, guys, a spirit can't eat fish. This is how you're going to know that I am here in body, is I'm going to eat this while I'm with you. And then he disappeared by walking through a wall again. You know, like, it's this it's juxtaposition you've got of these, these supernatural things that he's able to do as the Son of God. And then he comes and he says, here, touch where the nails were. I'm going to eat some fish with you. There's this, this mysterious bodily resurrection that's going on, and I don't really fully blame Thomas for needing a little bit of evidence before he could feel sure. And yet, so we've got this this resurrection story where we had Easter last week, and we had the, the Easter story, and we had the empty tomb, and we had Peter and John running to the tomb and Peter getting there a little first because he was faster. You know, like, no, s- switch that. John was faster. But Peter went in, because Peter's Peter, and he doesn't hesitate to do much of anything. And so you've got this story where there's this good news, and then they go back, and the women tell them, we have seen the Lord, and then the disciples can't quite believe it. And so then Jesus comes and appears to them in person, but Thomas wasn't there, and Thomas can't quite believe it. And then Jesus appears again, and Paul in Corinthians says that Jesus appeared to this long list of people as many as 500 at a single time. And then Paul says, and lastly, he appeared to me as one just kind of unnaturally stuck on the end there. And so I, I don't know about you, but some days I wake up and it's easy for me to believe the reality of bodily resurrection and a God who is able to redeem all things. Some days that comes naturally, and some days I wake up and something's happened. And life seems heavier, and it's hard, and it, it, it's harder for me to believe on those days. That, that, that God is going to redeem all things, and that all things are going to be made new and right and whole again. But we were, we were given a mission, because Jesus didn't just come and say, okay, well, now you have proof you can stay in the room. Now you've got proof your, your job is done, you can just relax, it's, it's over now. He gave them a job to do. And he gave us a job to do. And so I kind of think about it in terms of this. My my job before becoming a pastor was working in chemistry, and I happened to be working on a new possible treatment for HIV, right? If I had discovered a way where I can hand you a pill and cure a disease that was previously incurable, I'm not going to really wait to tell anyone about that. You know what I mean? Like, it's one of those things where I know you're sick, I know what ails you, and I can help. And I feel like that's, that's what Jesus was doing, because he came to the disciples, and he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them the evidence of what had been done to him. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord, because they knew what this meant. This meant that the world had thrown the worst they could throw at Jesus. They saw him die. They visited the tomb. They went to go see the tomb, and the tomb is empty. And not only is it empty, here is the resurrected, in the body, in the flesh, Son of God, God incarnate, who's up and walking around and eating fish and showing us the evidence of his new life. Kind of changes things. And so now they're sitting here going, okay, well, we were locked in our own room. We were scared to come out because we were afraid of what the Jews might do to us. Because we put our reputations on the line. We put everything we had on the line because we believed that this guy was the son of God. And then they killed him. But he's back from the dead. Oh, my goodness, what now? Where do we go from here? And so he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Because we don't have to wait for the resurrected Jesus to come and stand next to us. I would love it if that would happen, but 2,000 years of precedent says it's probably not going to happen this morning. But what we do have here with us is what Jesus said he would send. He gave it to the disciples in that upper room. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And when he was going, he said, it's actually good that I'm going away right now. Because when I go, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit is going to come and He's the one who's going to be able to come, not only comfort you, but he's going to guide you into all truth. There's going to be power that comes with that. And that's available to you and me every second of our Christian walk. And so we can expect someday, yes, there's that hope of resurrection where our bodies will be made new and whole again. We're going to receive new resurrection bodies and in the meantime, While we're living with the imperfect, broken world that we have, we have the Holy Spirit. And so as the Father has sent Jesus, so Jesus sent us. And when he said that, that's when we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to help us to do the things that Jesus was going to do, the things that Jesus was sent to do. We are sent to do those same things. So what was Jesus' mission? What, what, what types of things did he do while he was here? He healed the sick. He, he preached about what was important. And when he was asked to distill the entire law and prophets, which commandments is the greatest? He said, well, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a second commandment that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the example he gave of a neighbor was not your neighbor next door who lets you borrow his power tools when you need them. It was that weird guy from the country over who had different religious practices and he just seems a little odd and you just don't get the way they go to church because it's different. (laughs) The people who are different, those are the people you love the way you love themselves. That's what Jesus said our mission was sent to do. And so we have the Holy Spirit to help us to do those kind of things. And then he says something that really throws us, right? he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And see, now we're getting into uncomfortable waters because, you know, we as Protestants, we don't really, we have a hard time understanding what does it mean if a human has the power to forgive me or retain my sins? What does that, what does that mean? And so it begs the question, well, what are sins? And what does it mean to retain sins?
1: When I was growing up and I was little,
0: I thought that sin was just a list of stuff I couldn't do. You know, lying to my parents was a sin. And they made sure I knew by washing my mouth out with soap every time I lied You know, and like, there's this thing, like, well, that's clearly not good. And so, you know, probably pushing my brother or hurting him, well, that's a sin. I was, I was told very clearly, you don't do that. And so I sort of built this list of stuff I shouldn't do, and those, those were the sins, and okay, that's the stuff that, when I'm a good kid, I'm not that. It was all about actions. Then I got into high school, and maybe it, my, my understanding kind of developed a little bit, and I heard my youth pastor when I was in high school tell me, well, it's, it's anything you do that separates you from God. And so when God expects you to be kind and you are cruel instead, that is breaking your relationship with God and it separates you from him and that's sin. And so to be forgiven of that is to mend the relationship you have with God and to become one with him again. And I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense because now when I I lie or if I am cruel to my brother or when I do all sorts of bad things, that list now makes sense. I can see how that list of stuff separates me from God. I think I'm hitting another kind of change though in how I understand what sin is. I think sin is not only the stuff you do that has consequences. I think sin is also the consequences. Because sometimes someone else's bad decisions or someone else's wrong decisions have consequences for you. Sometimes you can be pushed away from God. Sometimes people have circumstances in their lives. Sometimes if I lie to someone, there's lots of effects. It doesn't only separate me from God. Sometimes... It can separate the person I lied to. It breaks our relationship. It creates all these ripple effects, and the people around me get farther away from God because of what I did. Which means that if Jesus came to heal and to redeem and to rescue us from the power of sin, it's a bigger deal than just, I can keep you from doing bad stuff. Now it's, I can rescue you not only from the things that you've done wrong, but I can also help to redeem and restore the consequences of what other people have done that has kept you separate from God. I can heal that, and I can bring you into right relationship with God and the people around you. There's this kingdom of God that includes not just you and God, but you and God and everyone else and God and everyone all together. Sin is not only an individual issue, it's a community issue. And so as we work together, we have the power to redeem or to reverse the effects of sin. The Holy Spirit has allowed us to forgive these sins, to take us from being this group of people that are all jockeying for position and trying to be what we think we ought to be, and to make us as a community into a people that support one another and want to live out what God's community looks like. And as weird as that seems, and to, to say, well, we can forgive sins, it makes a little more sense if we take it from being the, well, I can forgive your sins because you've hurt them. And it says, well, we, as the people of God empowered by the Holy Spirit can forgive sins. We can reverse the effects of sin because God has asked us to redeem a broken world. That is the mission. To go to the world and preach the good news, asking people to obey what Christ has commanded us to baptize them and teach them everything that Jesus commanded to the very end of the age. And so, lying is a sinful thing because of the damage it does. Because to live fully in the will of God is to be an honest, trustworthy person. And when we lie, we deny that. We break that. We we prevent us and even sometimes the people around us from living an honest and truthful life in the light of God. And so we have responsibilities to do what God has asked us to do, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the people around us. Because by living and doing what God has asked us to do, we can be a good example to others and to show them this is what the life in Christ looks like. This is what God has offered. This is the power of resurrection. I don't have to be the broken person I once was. I can be changed. I can be renewed. I can be made whole again. And even if my body dies and stops working, nothing is beyond the power of God to redeem. Nothing is beyond the power of God to make whole again and to make new. And so we are sent, as Jesus was sent, to forgive sins, to repair the damage that has been done by sin, to heal pain that people are suffering, to bring honesty to a lying world, to bring patience to a world that is self-absorbed, to bring love to a world that is so intimately familiar with hate. Because we are sent by Christ just as Christ was sent by the Father. And I think all that puts Jesus' comment to Thomas in context. Blessed are we who have not seen We believe. We have not seen the remade whole world that Christ says is coming. We haven't seen that, but we believe. We haven't seen Christ bodily resurrected, but we believe. That is a blessing. And so the days where you feel more like Thomas in that week between hearing about the resurrection and seeing it, and you've got those doubts, that's okay. I noticed in the story that Jesus never actually rebukes Thomas for it. He just says that when you haven't seen and you believe, that is a blessing. You are blessed when that is true. But he came back a second time to give Thomas the proof he needed. And I don't see any shame in that story. I don't see any rebuke from Christ in that. And so if you're in more of a doubting place than a believing place, I think you are blessed there too. I think you are comforted there too. Believing is not the way we earn God's love. Believing, I think, is a result of who we become when we accept God's love. Because God loves us no matter where we are or what we have trouble believing. And in Christ, we know the cure for what hurts us. And we know what the cure for that, that sin would be. And So how can we not be sent into the world as Christ was sent? We share the love that God has for us. And we bless Our neighbors, our family, our friends, and our co-workers with the life-changing truth of the God who died, descended into Hades, and on the third day was raised to life and sits at the right hand of God.